The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. One of the things that will be important for us to do, especially these first weeks of the course, <clears throat> is to um, get in touch with your own relationship to difficulty, to dukkha. And uh, just to be interested in that aspect of life because we tend to mask it in different ways, like with a strong story about what difficulty is. It's going to be, for most of us, a challenge. Sometimes what's useful is actually to go back, like with memory and hindsight, and uh, just remember your own moments in your life where you came face to face with this basic underlying truth of existence, which is it ain't easy being a human being. It ain't easy being this human being, having this life, right? So we don't, we're not always confronted with that, but we probably, all of us, have been confronted with that. And in the moments before we externalize it, like we blame somebody for the difficulties that I'm experiencing, but we have first, hopefully, some moments of just that simple recognition. This is hard. This is hard to bear. It's hard to be me right now. And then to get a sense of how the mind has over the years managed the exposure that comes with being a human being or just probably any being, but human beings seem to be more relevant because we're one of them, right? What What have our strategies been? Managing disappointment, managing betrayal, managing insecurity and vulnerability, uncertainty, injustice. How have we, what does our mind do with all of that? And it will be, it'll be very interesting. And so next week, I mentioned, we'll have small groups for that last half an hour between 8.30 and 9 p.m. And so one of the themes to bring up, and you can take some mental notes or actual notes this week as you reflect and as you notice, because whatever patterns have existed previously through the years, through the teens and the 20s and the 30s and all the way up to present time, they're probably those strategies are probably alive right now and just how you're managing dukkha, the unsatisfactory, the ungovernable, unreliable, uncertain aspects of life, unpleasant aspects of life. And this is a good time to just mention, you know, the three aspects or the three frequencies, it's sort of gross to subtle. So there's what's called dukkha-dukkha. This is ordinary physical pain, mental and emotional pain. 
So the very direct and immediate experience of unpleasantness. That's called dukkha dukkha. Right? So you can look how you manage dukkha dukkha. You hit your head on the kitchen cabinet and it hurts. And how, what ideas, what strategies, what activities does this life use to manage the pain? And you might be quite surprised of how ineffective they are. <laughs> or you might be brilliant at managing your dukkha. And then the, the next more subtle kind of dukkha is called um, viparanami, viparanama dukkha. And it means the dukkha of change. So like even when things are pretty good for me, I didn't bang my head, I feel a cool breeze, I overdressed tonight. I thought it was cold out. It's actually kind of warm. <laughs> but anyway, now I'm feeling a cool breeze, so I'm more comfortable. But I know that it will change. Like whatever relative comfort I have, I can't own it. I can't count on it. So even when things are going well, part of the mind, maybe not very conscious part of the mind, but part of the mind knows that it's not dependable. And that kind of spoiling of even favorable conditions is a kind of dukkha. Right? Even when we're eating something we like, we know I'll be full soon. And the pleasure I'm deriving from this is going to, it's very ephemeral. Or the you're watching a good show, but you know it's just a matter of time and it will be over and I'll be left alone with myself again. So notice that kind of dukkha. Like how even favorable conditions don't satisfy the heart because the heart knows at some level it can't count on even favorable conditions. I mean, it's almost like What's the point of living knowing I'm going to die? You know that feeling sometimes that comes up? Like, oh, I could do this. I'm 61. I could do this. I could do that. But I got to let it go anyway. Like, should I really bother to learn tennis? <laughs> you know? Because how many years do I have to play tennis? So it's that, it's that like, uh, what we might get excited about, but when we know we can't count on it, the sort of excitement goes away when we're honest with ourselves. Like even a really great date with a friend. You know, you're going to go to a fun place, restaurant, or whatever might be fun for you. But knowing that it will just be that two-hour thing kind of throws a little water in the excitement of it. Yeah, and then it will be over. And then I'll go home. And it doesn't take anything away, actually. It's just the mind is having it in perspective. Like, it will be nice, but it won't really save me. You know, the best vacation, the best meal, the best this or that. It's not really going to make me a happy person. It's just going to be what temporary pleasures are. Temporary pleasures. And the Buddha was, you know, very clear about that. I just maybe I can find this one quote um, from the suttas. So this is the Buddha 
Seeking satisfaction in the world, practitioners, I had pursued my way. That satisfaction in the world I found. That gratification, sense pleasure or whatever, joys that are available for human beings, the Buddha says, yeah, I found them. I experienced them. Insofar as satisfaction existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Seeking for misery in the world, practitioners, I pursued my way. That misery in the world I found. Insofar as misery existed in the world, I have well perceived it by wisdom. Seeking for the escape from the world, practitioners, I had pursued my way. That escape from the world I found. Insofar as an escape from the world existed, I have well perceived it by wisdom. If there were no satisfaction to be found in the world, beings would not be attached to the world. If there were no misery to be found in the world, beings would not be repelled by the world. If there were no escape from the world, beings would not escape from the world. So we have dukkha dukkha, just the ordinary mental and physical pain that comes our way, completely unavoidable. I mean, it's different for each of us. It's not like equal. Some of us are more fortunate, perhaps a little less mental or a little less physical pain. Some people more, some people a lot more, right? But everybody experiences mental and physical pain. Everybody experiences the dukkha of change, that we can't count on even favorable conditions. And then the most subtle kind of dukkha, sankara dukkha. Sankara is an interesting word. In Buddhism, it gets used in general ways, sometimes translated as conditions. The conditions are, we often say here, causes and conditions. That's sort of the most general sense of sankara, And then sometimes it has a much more specific sense, mental formations, intention, right? Is part of sankara. So sankara dukkha really points to the unsatisfactoriness that is just woven into existence. That just given how things are set up, you know, having a body and a mind, having a life, that this is... uh, natural changing process, there just isn't any solid ground anywhere. So from the point of view of being a separate being who is seeking security, I'm screwed. Right? So that's Sankara Dukkha. Now we might think that the problem, like we want to externalize the problem, like if only things weren't so ephemeral, if only things didn't change. But it's the problem really lies, like Sankara Dukkha is really about the person, the sense of a self that needs, seems to require safety or solid ground or security. We think the problem is that things change, but the problem is wanting things not to change, not that things are changing. But in any case, that disconnect in the tradition, the description, the 
I think related to the root of the word dukkha, is an axle that's out of true. So the wheel doesn't really work very well, like to pull a cart or something like that. So it's this disconnect where there's this sense of a being, me, who's looking for security in an existence that is a flow of causes and conditions. It's in motion, change, right? It's the sort of governing principle of existence, one thing after another, no ending to that flow, that flowing on. And yet there's a sense of a me that doesn't think it's going to be happy until I have solid ground that's secure, that can't be taken away. And that's the setup. And that, you know, always meeting life with that underlying view, there's me, the separate individual who would really like something solid to land on and count on. And I'm going to put my full confidence to that task. And if any of you get in my way, you're going to be in trouble, right? I mean, that's where war, that's where violence comes from. Somebody getting in our way of our seeking security. And anything can seem problematic. People crossing the border can seem problematic. Or, you know, people who are different than we are can seem problematic. Or liberals can seem problematic, right? Anything can seem problematic when, because we're all defining like what our solid ground is, right? We're all defining it according to our own way that this heart or mind's been conditioned by our culture and our upbringing. And so then we basically have a problem with existence the way it is, the sort of dynamic, changing, uncertain nature of existence. This is just the very nature, and yet we've constructed a deep need that can never be gotten. And that's Sankara Dukkha. So this week, you know, in preparation for the class next week and the small group sharings next week, get really interested in these three types of Dukkha. And really get interested in what your mind does. So you can't get lost in the reactivity to these three levels of dukkha. We're cultivating a kind of stable interest, like, well, this will be interesting, you know? I've got a cold. I have a little bit of a cold myself. And, you know, just then I was, you know, I was trying to prepare, but I was just so, I just needed to lie down three times this afternoon. And, uh, but I was lying there just aching, my joints aching. I was kind of just observing that experience of dukkha, you know, and all the different, tendencies, whether it's, oh, poor me, how can I get out of my responsibilities, you know, one thing after another, where there is a sense of a me who has a problem with the physical discomfort and that navigation, and just sort of observing how the mind relates to dukkha dukkha. And then when you notice during this week, pleasantness, it might even be in the middle of a sit where you feel pretty calm and settled, and notice that it's 
somewhat pleasant. And then just see, just check if there's that viparanama dukkha, which is at some subtle level the mind knows that it won't last. And just how that might be experienced for you. What does the mind do with that? And then the, even the more subtle dukkha that might come up, you know, where you basically get that sense of life being a setup. One way to get that deeper sense of dukkha, that it's just a, it's just not going to work, is realizing that because the unconscious programmed attitude is the world is here to make us hap- happy. It's a little bit like the Garden of Eden metaphor. We've got this great you know, life, this amazing body, this, all these possibilities, and it's really incumbent on all of us to sort of do something delightful with our lives. You know, really figure out like what kind of kitchen to have or, you know, what kind of vacation to take or what kind of uh, issue, justice issue, social justice issue to dig into to make the world a better place. So it might be a very noble project or it might be a more superficial project. But one way or another, you know, we think that the world is here for me to lean into in order to make something happy that will be satisfying in a deep way for me. Raise a kid is one of those things, right? Or train the partner to be the way you want them to be. Some of them are more endless and frustrating. But we have these projects where we think that life basically acting out the view that the world of experience is actually here to make me happy. And if I'm not happy, it's because someone's been messing with me and getting in my way of kind of organizing my life so it makes me happy, right? Or I got dealt a bad set of cards from God, you know, and that wasn't fair. So, or I just haven't tried hard enough. We blame ourselves. Like, I just got to really get my act together. And then my life will turn around and finally it will be good. But generally, we, it all comes down to this idea that that's the point of this existence is to use my body and my circumstance to be happy. That I feed on my life in a way that makes me happy. I benefit, I use the experiences to be happy. And in Buddhism, we call that the view of sensuality, right? That sense experience is here to make us happy. And the Buddha said, I checked that out, right? I realized what kind of gratification one gets when you have good fortune, like the Buddha did. You know, he's born as a kind of prince, evidently. And you put your hard into it, you know, to have as many nice experiences as you can have, you really see what that is. And the Buddhist conclusion is, why myself being impermanent, born and then destined to die, do I put 
all my energy into having things that are also going to come and go. Maybe I should seek something that, a happiness, a release, a freedom that isn't ephemeral, isn't impermanent. Right? So we abandon that idea that of feeding on life. So one way to get a sense of the sankara dukkha is catching how you expect some part of your life to make you happy. The kind of, if only, then I'll be happy. Or when I blank, then I'll be happy. And then look at that with real integrity, with real honesty, like that. the, the truth is that might not happen. I might not get that promotion. I might not get my body into shape. I might not renovate the kitchen. The world might not move in the direction of more justice. It might go the other way, right? Things might get worse. So it's sort of like, and then we realize that will help illuminate how the mind was dependent on some conditions that actually aren't dependable for its happiness. And now it's feeling a little bit exposed. Oh, I thought my partner was going to make me happy. I thought my body and getting into shape was going to make me happy or my kitchen or my was going to make me happy. And now I realize it's not dependable. It can't actually make me happy. And that will give you a taste of the Sankara Dukkha because you start to notice that whatever project you imagine may be worth doing, but it won't make you happy. And the story I've been telling over and over, so... Excuse me if you've heard it many times, but I just find it really potent. This um, writing from this uh, Buddhist author Susan Piver, um, who talked about going on retreat and was talking with someone who she didn't know at one of the early meals of the retreat and getting to know another person on the retreat. And he shared; he sort of opened up about being in a new relationship with a younger person, and they wanted to move in, and who's kind of reviewing the pros and cons of moving in with this person, and then turns to Susan and says, what do you think? Do you think it will work? And she had this really wise answer that even surprised her because she wanted to say initially, like, how do I know if it's going to work? You know. But she ended up saying something else. Of course it can work as long as you don't expect it to make you happy. Right? Of course renovating the kitchen can work if you don't expect it to make you happy. Getting a dog can work if you don't expect it to make you happy. Getting involved, getting a divorce, getting a new job, keeping the job you have can work as long as you don't think that condition, that circumstance is there to make you happy. Life works when we're not expecting it to make us happy. Life doesn't work when we expect it to make us happy. And this is really getting to that Sankara Dukkha and some of the deeper insights we'll have from this course is really like, remember the study of Dukkha is liberating. It's not like the Buddhist way to be morbid you know, or to get depressed. It's really designed as a liberating practice to contemplate the reality, our own direct, immediate reality of dukkha. 
the dukkha dukkha, when we bump our head or we experience painful loss, the uh, viparanami dukkha, when things are going well, but there's enough wisdom to know it's going to change. And this more subtle dukkha that all of this isn't here to make me happy. It's not this life isn't here to make me happy. It's so astounding of change. Because right? the self-view, it's like, okay, I've got this life, and if I don't m- use it to make me happy, I basically have screwed up. So we, you know, it's like this is what brings in a lot of conceit because we look around and go, well, I may, may not be perfectly happy, but I'm happier than those people. Well, that person, we're probably about the same. And that person bugs me because they seem they're happier than me. They got more. They've got what I want. Right? It's just an infinite number of ways to create more dukkha. The Buddha says, There is one thing, O practitioners, the not seeing of, which keeps you bound. You're bound in the cycles of suffering, the samsara. Right? There's the one thing, when we don't see it, keeps us bound. What is this one thing? What is the one thing, when we don't see it, we keep bound, we keep doing the same thing, getting the same result? What are we not seeing? Dukkha. That's why it's liberating. We, ne- we were so kind of arrogantly sure what we should do with dukkha that we never investigate it. We should get away from it, right? That's what we think. So when I'm experiencing dukkha, what do we do? We get ice cream. Or turn, you know, check our emails. We do something that feels fun, even though it may be kind of fun in a perverse way. There's that famous discourse the <clears throat> called the second dart or the second arrow. And one of the t- aspects of that teaching, it's really a beautiful, powerful discourse from the Buddha, where he says that, you know, as human beings, we inevitably get a dart stuck, right? We, there's a painful loss. Our dog of 12 years dies, or our partner leaves us, or our, we bump our head. That's called getting stabbed with a dart. And then he says, and because we don't know any better, because we've gotten stabbed with a dart, we stab ourselves with a second dart. And he explains that, right? Like when we have a painful experience, we don't know what to do with that painful experience except to seek out a pleasant experience. We don't know how to be with pain, any of those levels, dukkha, dukkha, viparanama, dukkha, sankara, dukkha. We don't know how to be with it except to seek something pleasure, pleasurable. So first, you know, we don't know what to do with pain of all, of all frequencies. So then it skews our relationship to pleasure. See, pleasure is just pleasure, but all of a sudden we've been born as somebody who thinks pleasure is going to save me. 
And that really distorts my relationship to any kind of pleasure, whether it's the pleasure of you know sexual intimacy or the pleasure of good food, the pleasure of entertainment, the pleasure of nobody bothering me, being left alone, the pleasure of being with friends or being in community where we belong, having success, you know, whatever the pleasure is, it gets perverted because now there's a sense of a me who needs this pleasure in order to be whole. What's that line from the Mike Myers from You Complete Me? He said to mini me. Excuse the obscure reference. <laughs> but it's, it's a good line. It's sort of like we feel that, right? That's the promise. It's not actually kept. But it's like, oh yeah, the ice cream when we go home or the whatever, you complete me. You made the day worthwhile, right? Yeah, it was terrible, but at least I got this. I got my, my comfortable bed. I've got my cat who knows how to stay put in my lap and acts like she likes it or he likes it. So whatever it is, we use the pleasure in a perverted way. And then that dependence on pleasure also perverts our relationship to neutral experience because all of a sudden neutral experience, which is most of what we experience as a human being, we don't care about it. Because it's not pain that we're running from and it's not pleasure that we're running toward. So what the Buddha uh, describes in this talk on the two arrows or the two darts is how we have a perverted relationship to unpleasant, pleasant, and neutral experience. And all of that, like that's a really useful way of understanding dukkha. Dukkha arises as how we relate to those feeling tones of pleasure, pain, and neutrality. We relate in stressful ways. We're stressfully ignoring neutral because it's not pleasurable and it's not pain that I've got to get away from. Right? We're stress- we have a stressful relationship to pleasure because we neurotically are trying to make pleasurable experiences Fix me, save me, make me whole, which they can't do. Ice cream will never make us whole. Relationships, have we learned yet? Relationships, those of you who are younger, they don't make us whole. (laughs) I have a really, really, I think, good relationship with my partner. But it hasn't fixed me. (laughs) You know? I don't think I fixed her. (laughs) So whatever you know, we might get in life. It will be what it is. It's really nice having a wholesome relationship, right? I wouldn't trade it. But it it hasn't saved me. It hasn't made the dukkha go away. It's just what it is. A nice friend to go home to, you know? A nice person to hang out with and do stuff with and to share the ups and downs of life with. But there's still that pain that comes with life. So that's another thing you can investigate this week, you know, is 
when you're understanding dukkha or when you're having some experience of dukkha, see how it's connected to pleasure, pain, or neutrality, how it's skewing or determining how your mind relates to feeling tone. So you could even ask, well, what's the feeling tone right now? Like you get some intuition. I think I'm a suffering human being. Oh, yeah, I'm taking a class on this. I'm supposed to be interested, right? I've committed to being interested in dukkha. So here goes. And then how do I be interested? Well, get interested in the feeling tone right now and how the mind is relating to the feeling tone. Because feeling tone, pleasure, pain, and neutrality, right? It's just what it is. It's just a pleasurable experience, but it's not more. Pain is just pain, but it's not more than what it is. And neutrality is just neutrality. But from an ignorant point of view, we're putting, we're sort of staking everything on feeling tone because we approach our existence from the point of view of a self that's trying to use my life, my experiences, to make me happy. So then, the way I evaluate, like, is life making me happy, it's all about feeling tone. So if I'm getting a lot of unpleasant feeling tone, it's like I'm really failing at that basic task of using my life to make me happy. Or if I'm getting a lot of pleasure, right, then I think I'm better than the rest of you because I got a lot of pleasure. And all of you are the grubbing people down there who don't have your acts together or don't have good fortune or whatever. Oh, poor you, right? And neutrality we just don't care about, which is stressful. So it's just an interesting way to begin to unpack how dukkha operates in our lives. Another thing that to keep in mind is, you know, because it's basically this uh, eight weeks, we're going to keep that lens, you know, that interest in dukkha. So it's not just studying our own hearts and minds, but we can study each other, not in a judgmental way. But, you know, everybody you're around is a suffering being. So in some ways it's easier initially to see what people are doing, like how they're relating to pleasure in a way that's actually stressful. How they're ignoring neutrality in ways that are stressful. How they're running, controlling the unpleasant in ways that's adding stress. I mean, yeah, it's unpleasant, but how their mind is relating to that difficult thing in their life is even adding more more pain. Because that's what we real that's what will change things is to keep mapping out how it's the not understanding of dukkha that is the cause of dukkha. That's something almost like a mantra to keep bringing up, so that when we have a pretty clear sense that I'm a suffering human being right now, oh yeah, and the Buddha says it's the not clearly, intimately understanding dukkha that's actually at the heart of why there's dukkha right now. 
So you see how that begs the question, well, what am I not seeing here? What am I unaware of due to habit, the habit I have, habits I have, what am I not seeing about this weightful, heavy experience of dukkha that I'm having right now? And so in this way, you know, it's not morbid. Morbid. We'd really rather see dukkha than not see it. Because there's no freedom when there's dukkha, but we remain oblivious. There's no way out. We just keep doing what we've always done and get the same results. So there's, it's a very empowering thing for a human being to say, I'm interested. Whoa, this is interesting. My heart, this heart is really heavy. This is really difficult. I really want this to go away. This is interesting. What am I not seeing here? I can, I mean, this is more than anything, you know, sometimes people ask, well, you've been practicing for you know, 37 years or so. What, what change do you notice? And one of the changes, the most impactful changes is when the heart is suffering, the mind is very naturally, really unstoppably interested when they're suffering. It, suffering doesn't happen for long before a real potent interest arises because there's enough confidence now from the years of practice that suffering is optional. Suffering is optional. It's real, but it's optional. It doesn't have to be the way it is. And one of the expressions of ignorance is when we're suffering, the arrogant conclusion, this isn't optional. I really am doomed. This really is hard. And there's no other way. This is, you know, because if you know how we react. I mean, a lot of times this isn't done very skillfully at all. But somebody comes, you know, with good advice. Oh, you don't need to be suffering. You know, you just need to look at it this way. And we just want to hit them. (laughs) No, no, you don't understand. My dukkha, my suffering is real. And it's such an affront for anybody to suggest to me that I don't need to be suffering. Because there's nothing more humiliating to be suffering when we don't have to be suffering. Right? Because then we... Not only are we suffering, but we feel like I'm a fool for suffering. But when it's done skillfully, usually it has to be done skillfully from ourselves, you know, well, maybe it doesn't have to be this way. I mean, we, there are places where we suffer in our lives where we've gotten pretty skillful at this, I'm guessing, right? Think about places in your life where you still end up really with a tight heart, burden, burdened heart, but now you're pretty sure you don't have to remain in that place. And you've learned how to get yourself out of that place. You know, like what you pay attention to. If I keep paying attention to one thing, it amplifies the sense of uh, somebody who's suffering. If I pay attention to some other aspect of the present moment, the whole thing looks differently. Suffering doesn't exist anymore. It changes. And like I said, it's kind of shocking because part of the experience of dukkha is the very personal identification 
with the suffering. You don't really get dukkha without the ignorant sense of self, self-centeredness, self-identification with the one who's suffering, the one who is the sufferer. Like one of the great saints, uh, hundreds of years after the time of the Buddha, Buddha Gosa was this monk's name, wrote, suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Right? And that's part of how we liberate ourselves from these little places. We realize, oh yeah, when I take it personally, it really hurts, but I don't need to take it personally. I can just go do the next thing, whatever that is. I don't have to act out the role of being the sufferer. And it's amazing how the ordinary ups and downs in life are so manageable when we choose not to act out that role of being the sufferer. And the Buddha made it really the center of his teachings. A lot of you know that talk on the the leaves, you know, where he held up a lot of, uh, he pointed to all the leaves in the forest and held up just a couple. And he asked the practitioners around him, what's more, all the leaves in the forest are these few leaves in my hand? It was obvious, you know, more leaves in the forest, just a few in your hand. And the Buddha says, just so. There are many things I could be teaching, but I only teach a few things. I teach suffering and the end of suffering, right? So this is a really pragmatic set of teachings. He's not trying to teach what the meaning of life is, what the sort of metaphysical truth is of reality. He's really teaching from the subjective point of view of somebody suffering and somebody not suffering. Really in this pragmatic way, there is suffering and there's an end. And what have I declared, the Buddha said? This is suffering, I have declared. This is how it comes to be, I have declared. This is the ending of suffering. This is the way leading to the ending of suffering. This is what I've declared. Why have I declared this? Because it's beneficial. It belongs to the fundamental fundamentals of a skillful life. It leads to disenchantment, dispassion, cessation, to peace, to direct knowledge, to awakening, to Nibbana. That is why I have declared it. And this is what we'll do. So I'll just end with this last sharing, just because it's so poignant. What do you think, practitioners? What is greater? Which is greater? The tears you have shed while living your lives, wandering this long, long time, crying and weeping from being joined with what is displeasing and being separated from what is pleasing. This or the water and the four great oceans. This is the greater, the tears you have shed. Right? That's a lot of tears. Long have you experienced the death of a mother, the death of a father, the death of a brother, the death of a sister, the death of a son, the death of a daughter, loss of relatives, loss of wealth, loss due to disease, 
the tears you have shed over loss with regard to all of this, crying and weeping from being joined with, with what is displeasing, being separated from what is pleasing, are greater than the waters in the four great oceans. Why is that? From an inconceivable beginning comes this, these circles of samsara. A beginning point is not evident. Though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving come and go. Um, sorry. Long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabricated things, enough to become dispassionate, enough to become released. And this is the really potent place the Buddha points to, how to be a human being, to have a body, to have responsibilities, to live our lives, to engage our lives free of attachment. Right? This is the ending of suffering, not getting the heck out of here, because in the Buddha's cosmology, you just end up in another life, right? So that whole idea of transcendence doesn't, like the Buddha really nixes that idea, like not helpful. To really use the life we have to learn how to be engaged, to be sensitive, to show up, but without attachment. And that's just the pointing out. We don't want to believe in that. We want to check it out in little and big ways. And that's another thing you could bring to the small groups next week is the little experiences of the ending of suffering, right? Where you're, something's happening, there's a lot of attachment, there's enough wisdom to know I'm suffering. I'm attached, right? And then this is what I meant about like, what can be done? What can I pay attention to? How can I relate to what's happening in a way that alleviates the crunch in my heart? the contraction. Because it's not uh, unhooking from attachment arises through understanding. Right? It's like being intimate with dukkha allows us to see that the underlying cause is attachment. Instead of feeling like I'm going to get rid of that attachment because that's just more of the same, isn't it? Getting away from what's painful. We understand attachment for what it is. That's the cause for the letting go of attachment. We get intimate with it. So see if you can catch a few moments this week where the conditions are ripe, the mind's in balance, you notice your suffering, you notice the attachment as the cause, you get intimate with the attachment, you become patient, you're willing to be sensitive, you're willing to feel what attachment feels like until on its own, Attachment ceases. And in that moment, the mind realizes an astounding thing. There was attachment, and now it ceased. And this is the freedom from that attachment. The mind learns something that can be applied to so many moments in life. Because really, Nibbana, full awakening, is just the complete generalization of that little insight of seeing There's attachment, there's attachment, there's attachment. 
it's gone. No more attachment. So watching attachment cease on its own. You can see it any, you know, your little mosquito is bugging you when you're in bed and you're really attached, you know, to the idea about who left the window open and or just being burdened by the mosquitoes or attached to the idea of a world without mosquitoes. Whatever it is, the mind, heart, body is contracted. Somebody, it really seems like somebody has a problem. And you just, and then you might catch, okay, the problem isn't the mosquito, the problem is not liking there being a mosquito. That's the problem. Because the mosquito, the sound, as obnoxious as it is, isn't actually, doesn't have to be a cause of suffering. Nor does the bite have to be a cause of suffering. Or whatever else, getting out of bed and catching it. Or going into the other room. Or whatever else you might do. None of that has to be a problem. Unless the mind decides it's a problem. The attachment's always optional. But you can't make it go away, but you can see that it's not functional, it's not helpful, until it does go away. And then that's a really potent little learning, that kind of moment. So it'd be nice to hear from, you know, in the small groups next week, people sharing about insights into seeing these three kinds of dukkha, learning something about feeling tone, and noticing moments of cessation when attachment goes away and the mind understands this is the end of dukkha. This is the mind relatively free of dukkha. There was dukkha, now it's gone. That's a little freedom, a little taste of freedom. Let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. Appreciate a few moments of silence. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.